Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is the podcast edition for Friday, August 13th, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We hope you have a great weekend in store, one that will keep you safe and healthy. We're going to be talking a lot today about the spread of the Delta variant of COVID-19, the novel coronavirus here in New Mexico, as case numbers just continue to soar. Uh, almost 800 confirmed new cases uh, this today alone on Friday the 13th. Uh, no irony there intended as this nightmare situation continues for all of us. We don't know what all that will portend, but we know it also comes at a time when students headed back to the classroom, many of which you cannot be vaccinated, and all the science continues to show that the majority of hospitalizations around new cases are tied to the unvaccinated, and we want to hear more about that to kick things off. Uh, we listened in this week on an update from hospital administrators, uh, as well as testing officials here in New Mexico, and the tone was stark indeed pleas for vaccinations uh, and the behaviors we have all come to learn now uh, make us all safer masking and social distancing again this is about stopping the spread of the delta variant and the covid19 cases that is what everybody is after you're going to hear how the hospitals are already strapped it's not like a year ago when we had surges because they're trying to get caught up on all of the things they put off to try to help COVID patients in the past. And so we don't have a lot of availability there. In fact, Roswell is already sending their patients up to Albuquerque for COVID cases because of that very situation. Uh, so again, let's kick things off with our hospital administrators. And I think a point to really hone in on comes from the representative from UNH, UNMH hospitals talking about how bottom line is the longer we let this uh, any virus out there to spread, the more chance for it to mutate and lead to other variants. And we already know there are some other variants out there beyond the Delta variant. So uh, hear now a little more from those hospital officials. Welcome, everyone, to another special live episode of Growing Forward. It's the collaborative podcast between New Mexico Political Report and New Mexico PBS, where we look at cannabis in New Mexico. <clears throat> I'm Andy Lyman with New Mexico Political Report, and I'm joined, as always, by my fellow co-host, Megan Camrick, a New Mexico PBS correspondent and KUNM's news director. And today we're talking with New Mexico Regulation and Licensing Superintendent Linda Trujillo. Thanks so much for joining us again, Superintendent. Hi, Andy. It's always nice to be on here. It's good to see you too, Megan. Good to see you, Superintendent. Thanks. Uh, Superintendent, since the last time we spoke, your department has held two public rulemaking hearings and made some changes to the proposed rules for cannabis growers. And there's a statutory deadline to start accepting cannabis license applications by September 1st, which is dependent on finalized rules. So how is RLD doing in terms of meeting that deadline? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, we are going to slide under it just in the nick of time. Uh, in fact, we are meeting again this morning. I've been working all weekend. Um, it's, you know, we're, we're dividing up and conquering how we 
look at the public comments, add the public comments in, make changes to the rules. Um, there's not this last time, uh, there's not been a lot of variety in the public comments. Much of them are um, a, a really the same um, issues. And so it, hopefully this time it's a little bit easier. I haven't found anything to date that's gonna be substantive that would require us to go back out for another rule hearing. Um, of course, we're gonna to have to start having other rule hearings, but the, the, the idea is, is that we're gonna to have to file these by Thursday. And that's the timeline for the um, New Mexico Register is they have to be filed by Thursday and then they'll be published on, I believe, August 22nd, um, which is the effective date of the rules. And so we're going to we're going to be really close to the September deadline, but we are going to beat it, miss it, or you know, at least make it um, within a little bit of time. So they actually have to be filed. Okay, this Thursday. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and so you're ahead of schedule. It sounds like. Yeah, we're, we're minimally ahead of schedule. Okay. We would have liked to have been, you know, to be able to file the last um, bunch of rules, but it was pretty clear that there was enough substantive issues that we weren't going to be able to consider it what's called legally a logical outgrowth of any changes. This time, there's not those kinds of substantive changes. Um, I'll just give you an example. One a comment that was raised a couple of times in the public hearing, as well as um, in comments, was to extend the provisional license from three months to a year. And so what we're proposing is to extend it to six months with an opportunity to, in writing, to extend it for another six months. Um, and remember, now we're having our first Cannabis Regulatory Advisory Committee. And so when I say proposed, you know, they're going to be looking at them tomorrow and they'll be taking into consideration the drafts that we made based upon our research and then whatever changes we've made based upon the public comments. They'll also have access to all the public comments. So our hope is that they'll um, give us a thumbs up for if not all the majority of the rules that we need to file and then we'll move forward with that on Thursday. So in terms of the proposals you hope to file by Thursday, were there a, a substantive changes? You just referred to one based on public comments. Yeah, that wouldn't be considered a substantive change. Going smaller, you know, like saying instead of three months, we if we changed it to one month, that would be kind of an unfair to the public because we said three months and if we drop it down, then people wouldn't have had an opportunity. But to extend it to six months with an opportunity to extend it another 12 or another six months um, isn't outside of what the public would understand as kind of a logical outgrowth of what they had an opportunity to comment on. And so there hasn't been anything to date that's required us to make that kind of change that's completely outside of the scope of what we proposed. Okay, okay. Um, and the what was the reasoning behind shifting the provisional from, now I got my numbers mixed up. <laughs> from three months to, to six, six months, months. Thank you. possibly 12. Because yeah. um, uh, the purpose of the provisional license is to give potential 
licensees, these are still applicants to give them an opportunity to show um, that let's say they're waiting for approval of their license to sign a lease um, and or they're waiting um, to get their license, they have to get their business license. So there's a number of things that kind of have to, one falls after the other. And we thought that three months was gonna be enough time for folks to, applicants to get all of those pieces together and bring them. But there, the, the comments that were made indicated that that might not be enough time. And so our goal was to try to give enough time and make it open enough that people could get those things accomplished. And it seemed reasonable to extend it to six months with an opportunity for an additional six months. I see. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Yes, we, we definitely heard some feedback around that when we talked to people at, in the podcast and at the cannabis conference recently. Yeah, yeah. Another another example, Megan, is um, there was a number of comments and we got a number of written comments about the variance. And so um, that was never intended to be a variance from the statute. It was always intended to be a variance from the rules. Um, we can't provide a variance to the statute. And so what we've done is we've added into that variance language clear language, just, just one little piece that says it cannot deviate. A variance cannot deviate from the statute. So, so that was, again, that was like, there was a lot of comments, particularly from the water um, uh, advocates for water in New Mexico brought that up. The variance that we weren't allowed to allow a variance from the water requirements. And that was never the intention of the variance. And so we clarified in the rule that it was not does not include variance from the statute, only from the rules that we um, that we you know are going to adopt in response to the statute. Got it, Superintendent. I noticed uh, there were a couple of people appointed to the cannabis regulatory advisory committee that were not, or I didn't see them listed as applicants. Namely, uh, Pueblo Pueblo of San Ildefonso Governor Perry Martinez and medical cannabis patient, uh, Nathan Paolinelli. Um, I know there were some positions like representatives of law enforcement, the public defender's office and district attorney association that had to be appointed by those certain organizations. But can you explain why there would be appointed members that uh, maybe didn't apply in that initial uh, applicant application yeah, process? Absolutely, Andy, that's a really good question too. Um, when we asked for the applications for the Cannabis Regulatory Advisory Committee, um, we knew that we would potentially get some applicants. We weren't sure that we would get enough applicants. We got a lot of applicants in the long run, but we also talked to other stakeholders outside of that application process to make sure that we were having voices that were heard. And a couple of the stakeholders that we communicated with is giving the tribes, pueblos, um, and reservations an opportunity to submit. And so that was like in addition. In fact, one of the things that we had talked about early on is maybe not even put that um, position on um, as uh, looking for applicants. But we decided, you know what, we're going to go even above that. So we put it on the list looking for potential applicants for that position. 
Um, but we also talk to outside interested parties. And the name that ultimately was chosen was a recommendation, um, I believe from uh, Picaris Pueblo, I believe, was the one who um, recommended it, and it was a, it was a, it was a very good recommendation. And so, after talking with stakeholders, that was how that decision was made. But it wasn't, you know, appointing people was not limited to the people that were going to apply for it. That was just one way that we were looking for potential candidates. And I think you'd mentioned this, <clears throat> excuse me, a second ago. Um, that the, the, that board still um, would issue a recommendation on the, the current rules, right? Yeah, that's exactly what um, is required is that the board um, make a recommendation. Now it's not a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down from the board, um, but it's hopefully we'll be able to explain where we, where we came up with the rules, the information that was used for best practices. And you know, my hope is that we've got it right this time um, but, you know, there could be some suggestions for additional rules or maybe for some language uh, corrections that could still not have to go back out for rule hearing. But yes, they have an opportunity tomorrow to recommendation to make a recommendation about the rules that we had the public rule hearing for. One of uh, the advisory board rather includes one member who offers expertise in cannabis laboratory science. And we recently visited a cannabis testing lab for an upcoming episode. Testing standards are probably an important piece in establishing an adult use cannabis program. When should the public expect to see proposed rules for testing cannabis products? Yeah, that's, um, we're actually in the process of contracting with a firm, the same firm that um, helped us with the initial analysis. They've been working with other states. We'll probably get information elsewhere, but that's a pretty scientific process for us to undertake. And we don't feel that we have the expertise in-house at the department um, in order to move that forward. And so we're contracting to um, bring this company in, they're gonna do some stakeholder meetings with individuals from uh, the environment department, the agriculture department, individuals that are currently in the industry. Um, they're gonna do those kinds of stakeholder meetings um, to get input. And then they'll also be looking at best practices around the country and ultimately um, come up with a draft that we'll be able to propose to the committee. And the, in, in this instance, we're hoping that the committee will have an opportunity to make a recommendation. Now that they're appointed, um, they'll be much more on the front end of things instead of um, where we're kind of at right now because of the timeline. Uh, I apologize. We did have a question in the Facebook chat. I did not see it. Um, our producer just alerted me. Rosalie Flores was asking about the unlawful variance mechanism. OSE clearly stated during a presentation that a business could apply for a variance to get approval until water rights were proven. Please clarify that point to OSE so they are not misleading applicants. And I'm, yeah, tell me, remind us what OSE stands for as well, State Engineers. Um, Office of the State Engineer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so the the variance is not an is not an option again to get a variance from the statute. 
the Cannabis Regulation Act cannot have a variance. That is set by the legislature and we're um, required to follow it. Um, what the variance does is gives potential licensees an opportunity to state their case. Let's say um, the example that I could give you is we recognize that there's gonna be some micro producers who are out really in the middle of nowhere, right? I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just mean there's not roads around them. There's not houses around them. Um, and maybe a fence is not necessary. I don't know, but we couldn't come up with an idea as to how do we give, um, how do we make it easier for a micro business and how do we make sure that we don't have onerous regulations that are kind of carved in stone? The variance gives us the opportunity to consider those kinds of variances that are not statutorily mandated, but potentially could not be necessary for a small business that doesn't isn't in a, a, a populated community. Um, the the so that's what the variance is required, and the reason that we set it up as a public uh, uh, hearing is because we wanna make sure that the public and interested parties have an opportunity to comment on that variance. It's very similar to the kind of building variances that we have in our communities, um, where you've gotta go before the, the committee. In this case, you're gonna go before probably a hearing officer appointed by the, depart the division. You'll state your case, you'll give your facts, and then the hearing officer will make a recommendation and the department division will ultimately make a decision. But it has nothing to do with whether or not you have to prove that you've got water rights or that you've got access to commercial water. Where the what what might have been heard is that the provisional license gives folks an opportunity to go and get all of those things. But it's important to remember that when you've got a provisional license letter approval, that you cannot start your business. And it, and it doesn't even mean that you're going to start your business. It just means here's the list of the things that you've turned in that the division has approved. And here's a list of the things that you don't have yet. And you have to provide in order to be approved. And if water rights is on the list of what you haven't provided or a business license is on the list of what you haven't provided, you will not get to function as a cannabis producer or any other type of licensee until you've provided that particular document. That's what the provisional license is about. And again, it goes that chicken and egg thing where we've talked about this before, that we're requiring a business license to show that you're meeting local requirements, zoning and such. And the local community requires a license from us to show that you're properly licensed under the Cannabis Regulation Act. We can't put licensees, applicants in that position. So the provisional license gives them that assurance. They've met all these qualifications and all that's left is these. Uh, before I get to my next question, um, uh, or before we start to wrap up, I just wanna remind uh, anybody watching on Facebook, uh, to drop your comment in there if you have a question. Um, but superintendent, speaking sort of of this jurisdictional issue, uh, the city of Albuquerque adopted zoning requirements for cannabis businesses several weeks ago, and now officials with Chavez County, which includes Roswell, are considering some restrictions that might include hours of operation and no sales on Sunday. 
And then in addition to that, there was uh, talks in Santa Fe County of limiting personal grows to indoor only. Can you explain where RLD's jurisdiction ends when it comes to this local control issue? Yeah, we actually don't have jurisdiction over those things that you're talking about. So to the extent that a local jurisdiction can determine um, time, place, and manner restrictions, that is completely within their jurisdiction. And originally, we thought that the location to schools and daycare was within our jurisdiction. We got legal counsel, but it was not. It is limited to the local jurisdiction. And so that will not be in our proposed, in our ultimately adopted rules. Any reference to location is going to be limited to the local jurisdiction. Now, whether it falls within the guidelines of what the statute allows a local jurisdiction to determine is ultimately gonna be determined by the courts, it's, but it's not within our power to make those kinds of, of, of restrictions or to enforce it. Which would mean that somebody would have to challenge it in court. It's just just so uh, anybody watching knows that it's uh, not the courts can't just decide to take this up. Yeah. Somebody has to no. file it with the courts. That's right, Andy. Thank you. I do have one more question, Superintendent. We did an interview last week, um, and it was uh, someone in Las Cruces who raised an issue I hadn't heard before. And again, this might not fall under your jurisdiction, but they uh, had a letter from the Water Utility Authority basically saying because the authority there or the water supplier gets federal funds, ergo, they could not supply water for someone who's going to grow cannabis. And I was wondering if this has come up and I don't, if this, what, hap what, is, what happens in this case? Is this something that falls under RLD's purview? I know we're in weird territory here because it's federally illegal, yet we're legalizing it here. Yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't heard that particular um, scenario um, and certainly can't provide legal guidance for the commercial water source. That's something that that local community is going to have to have to figure out, but we'll require that there be some sort of documentation that you have access to water, and that you have and that you can use the water for agricultural purposes. Um, it, it is important to note, though, that we haven't begun talking about manufacturing, and under the statute, the manufacturing um, type facilities will also have to prove that they have access to water. So it's not just part. the producers. We do have another comment from uh, Jacob uh, who says Bernalillo County, then Santa Fe County look too overrepresented to me. This leaves rural communities underrepresented and will likely lead to equity issues down the line. What do you think about getting representation in rural communities? It was something that we tried, um, that we spent a lot of time trying to make sure we do have uh, representation from some rural communities. Uh, it, it would be nice if we had representation from every corner of the state, but there's not enough positions on there. Um, and so I, I would say I do believe that there are some rural community representatives on the um, committee. And um, to the extent- We should clarify, we're, we're talking about the Cannabis Advisory Board, I think. Yeah, yeah, I believe that's the case. And so um, I, I think regardless of-, of of the numbers, there is some representation from rural communities, and we're excited about that. There's at least two from the um, automatically appointed individuals, and then we've got a number of positions 
Um, we've got um, uh, Chase Gentry is over from the uh, Clovis Portales area and Chase worked on bringing the cheese plant to New Mexico. Um, I've known Chase for a long time and I think he brings a good valid rural New Mexico economic development voice to the table. So I, I do think that we've got a good balance of that. And I, uh, there are a couple other comments. Um, Andy, <laughs> did you want to jump in? I'm sorry. No, that's exactly what I was getting to. Okay. I think there's a question about consumption lounges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, do consumption lounges and areas have to be in a standalone building? So that's, that is really interesting because we've learned that there's going to be, and I've said this all along, is that we have to think of consumption as more than just smoking, right? Smoking is going to be one medium and the law requires that if you're going to do smoking, that it has to be in an outdoor approved outdoor area where the smoke can't get into other areas that are protected by the, um, the D. Johnson Clean Air Act or it has to be in a standalone building so that the smoke again doesn't get into other um, areas that are protected. And so if you're gonna do smoking, then yes, those are the two requirements, but there's other ways of consuming cannabis. And you know we've seen some rather creative ideas that could be popping up, um, uh, meals uh, around cannabis, uh, different kinds of edibles. And so I think people are gonna get really creative and um, as we move forward in that, I think there's gonna be even more creativity. But smoking, yes, those two requirements. And I apologize, Rosalie did have, I didn't see this till now, she had a follow-up on the variance questions. She said, if the variance does indeed remain, it should apply only to micro businesses, not uh, to be allowed to large operators, if the reasoning offered is indeed to benefit small businesses. Yeah, we're not gonna, the, the variance is not intended to just be for the micro businesses. We do believe that, um, that even businesses who are gonna grow more than 200, because keep in mind, micro business producers are limited to 200, but there may still be individuals that go just above that 200 threshold that are still considered to be small businesses. They're still considered small businesses in many respects. Okay, the consumption areas opened up several questions. <laughs> Sorry to jump back and forth, folks. It's okay. Um, it's okay. Will, will there be a special event consumption license available? And I'll, I'll combine it with this. Can vaporizers be used inside, not smoke? Yeah, I am not the expert on vaporizers. I so I'd have to get some, you know, some guidance on what that means. Um, I think there's still smoke connected to that, but I don't know. So I don't want to really talk about the vaporizers unless I can get, until I can get more uh, educated on that. But we have heard individuals, and that's why I say, I think there's going to be a lot of creative ideas um, around consumption areas. And as we explore those, um, we're certainly going to be looking to the public to provide us some ideas on what kind of consumption areas might be popping up. And then once we start drafting those rules, then we'll have a better idea as to what could, content, could considerably you know, be considered um, and what won't be. I think the, the high priority is gonna be how can you have consumption and ensure that kids um, 20, under 21 are not gonna have access to it. And so, 
I, 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 we're really pretty open to that because I think there's a lot of creative ideas that are out there. So the idea of a special event consumption license might still be in the offing. I, I think it's still, it's still on the table that, that the consumption areas are not something that we have to have the rules ready for until January. And so I think there's still a lot of conversation that can be had around that. And what we end up with, I don't just don't know, because I couldn't have told you in January what the producer rules were going to look like. I think it, everything is on the table right now. I don't want to keep you for too long, and we do have to wrap up here pretty soon. But speaking of those special event licenses reminded me um, it, it seems like there might be some other events. We talked about Speakeasy uh, earlier, the, the, the place that got the uh, cease and desist letter, which they complied with. But I've been hearing about a lot of these other events, like a, a, a dining event. Um, <clears throat> is, is RLD continuing to sort of monitor those things and, and let people know that you can't do that until um, the license or until, until the, the framework is set up? Yes, that's exactly right. And um, keep in mind that um, under the Department of Health rules, which are now RLD rules in regards to the licensing of cannabis establishments, they do have consumption um, type licenses available. We haven't had any requests for that, but regardless, they would still only be limited to medical um, registry patients. Um, and so, so that's really kind of the, 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 the issue right now is that it's limited to medical. It's not allowed for adult use um, outside of medical, but we are doing our best to kind of keep track of that. I think it's important to point out that the law gives us the authority um, to license and to revoke licenses. Um, we have limited authority for a cease and desist but when there's criminal activity, um, then we have a responsibility to report that to the Department of Public Safety. And in all instances, we have and will continue to do. Well, I, I thank you so much for joining us, Superintendent. I think we can probably uh, take questions for a, a lot longer than we have. But we could. So I, that's why I wanted to ask you if you want to answer more questions. It's up to you. We have a couple more. Yeah, I'm good. I'm okay. good. I, I don't have anywhere I have to be until okay, a little good. bit later. So. Yeah, I wasn't sure how much time we had with you. Um, packaging, will more environmentally friendly protocols and practices be incentivized or promoted for cannabis packaging? There's so much waste in medicinal packaging because of mandated regulations. Yeah, that's something that we're definitely going to be looking at. We haven't actually started the process of um, rules in regards to package, packaging and labels. One of the things that's happening across the country though is what's been referred to as kind of the Hollywood video um, idea where you've got packaging that you go into a dispensary and you can see, but when you walk out of the store, you've got a plain package that has the warning labels on it. Um, and that's what, you, that's what you leave with. That's kind of a, uh, an effort that's moving forward, like I said, in different places across the country. And it has two um, benefits to it. One being the limited waste of packaging, um, but the other being that it's less appetizing for children. 
And uh, Colin actually wants more openness and transparency around how the Cannabis Advisory Committee was selected. He says the public has no idea how those members were chosen. We have serious ethical concerns about the selection process, some of the individuals involved. We have submitted an open government request to RLD from the citizens of New Mexico and the New Mexico Patients Collective seeking public record. Yeah, and we'll we're happy to comply with any requests for inspection of public records. Sometimes, as you know, Andy, it takes us a little bit longer than we anticipate, um, We've, but, but we're doing our best. We've got, in fact, we're trying to bring on two additional um, paralegals that will um, be available to help us to move those forward even quicker. But we're happy to, re we're happy to comply with whatever um, requests come in and will. Jacob is also wondering how local governments, which need your direction, um, will be communicated with. Oops, I just scrolled up too hard. Do they reach out individually or how is that happening? Yeah, so I have been working very closely with AJ Fort and Larry Haran um, to try to um, have, and I've had a number of workshops. I had a two and a half hour workshop where um, county jurisdictions, elected officials and staff who are impacted by making these ordinances had an opportunity to participate. It was very well attended. Um, I also um, helped with, uh, and I think it was about the same, about two and a half hour presentation for um, municipalities. And we had lots and lots of participation on that one also. I have met, and, and my staff and I have met um, specifically with Las Cruces staff. We've met with um, Santa Fe staff, we've met with, um, I'm trying to think, uh, Rio Rancho, we've met with Rio Rancho, and we, we take calls, and we try to answer their responses, but we are kind of like moving our, our, our involvement and our, our information towards the associations that represent those local jurisdictions, so that they can have more of a kind of a unified response. And, and so those associations are helping us to get the word out. I just lost my, oh wait, here we go. <laughs> um, let's see, I'm not sure I have the most recent. Uh, sorry, I'm scrolling through this on my phone. That's okay. Um, there was also a question, uh, let's see. I do see a question here. I think I might be able to help answer. Mm -hmm. uh, regarding uh, filtration with the uh, HVAC system, um, Nick is asking why can't it be used for consumption lounges to prevent smoke transfer, uh, to allow people to avoid needing to use a standalone building. I, I don't know, I'll ask for clarification on this, but I think that, that might, you might be limited to, to statute on that, right? That's exactly right. The statute requires that it be in an outdoor approved smoking area under the D. Johnson um, Clean Air Act, or that it be a standalone building. And the language in the act is specifically that. And it's, it's, the language is very similar to the language from the D. Johnson Clean Air Act for uh, uh, cigar lounges. It's very similar to that. And so we cannot go outside of that. This is a question that has come up occasionally in our podcast. Does the Real Estate Association have the power to ban home grows against renters or do landlords have the power? 
That's a really good question that I just don't know um, whether they do or they don't. I mean, I think, uh, you know, what I've tried to kind of bring to the forefront is if you're renting or leasing, you probably should, in fact, check with the um, entity from which you're, you're renting or leasing. And I, I don't know the laws around uh, leasing and renting and whether they could, in fact, have those kinds of restrictions. One other question, I think that this goes back to, again, the difference between statute and rules uh, is a question. It said, Carlos asked what the thought process was in not including a cannabis law attorney in the regulatory advisory committee. Again, I think that was what the statute outlined for the, the committee, right? Yeah, that's correct. That's, that's exactly what the statute outlined. Um, we are in the process of, and right now, you know, we don't have any positions and so what we're trying to do is contract with folks. And so um, we are in the process of contracting with a couple of attorneys um, or at least looking for some attorneys. We're gonna, we're gonna do some small contracts, but um, we're gonna also go out for an RFP so that we can try to get some attorneys that actually do in fact have some uh, background in cannabis regulation. Um, I'm not sure I'm reading this right, but it's a question that keeps coming up about patients getting priority as we go to recreational cannabis. David's asking if 18, 19, 20 year old patients can grow their medication now, or if there are more than two adults growing in the home with a patient in the same home, but wants to grow. I guess the upshot is how does the patient get priority as we move to this new recreational um, framework? So I, I don't believe that there's any kind of priority um, the law allows up to six plants for an individual, up to 12 plants for a household. That is across the, um, that's across the spectrum. There's not any specific designation for whether you have to be a medical patient or not. Um, there is some question about uh, 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. Um, as I look at the statute, I do believe that they have the ability to grow, um, but this has been brought up with legislators and we'll be uh, considering potentially some amendments to clarify um, that they have the opportunity to grow. But a priority, I'm, I don't think there's any, if you're going to be in a household that has um, a medical patient, that, that's kind of a family thing, I guess, that you're going to have to work out. I think, and, and maybe the question was uh, also, it seemed to me that they were asking also um, if you're, because right now the statute says there's no more uh, PPL or personal production license. Um, you can be 21 and grow, but I think the question might be for if you're, if you're 18 or even younger than 18, you can be a patient. Um, so if you're 18 to 21, could you still grow your medical uh, plants, I guess, without... Uh, um, without legal action. Yeah. yeah, we believe that you can, but it's not real clear. It does seem like it's a little squishy. It was brought up during the special session by the Department of Health, um, but it was it was very late in this in the in the process. And um, we looked at the statute and we 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 feel that a medical patient who's 18, 19, or 20 can in fact grow up to six plants. Um, we also believe that the statute is, is broad enough that it allows someone who's 18, 19, and 20 that has um, direct care for 
a medical patient that is under 18 to be able to grow up to six plants. We do believe that the, the statute allows for that under the Lynn and Aaron Compassionate Use Act. But again, um, it's not real specific. It's kind of, you have to kind of get to it in a roundabout way. And so it is on the table for discussion right now as to whether or not we need to put clarifying language in the statute to ensure that that's the case. I think uh, it's probably a good time to wrap up. I know there's lots of questions uh, or, or comments uh, on the thread there. Um, and apologize if we didn't get to yours. Um, but uh, thank you, Superintendent, for talking to us today. I always enjoy coming and talking with you guys. I, and I love the questions that come up. Believe it or not, the questions that come up and the comments that I hear from the public really do help form um, the directions that we're going and, and how we look at licensing and how we look at regulation. It's really incredibly important. So thank you for letting me come on again. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you all for your questions and for watching. Yes, yes. This was, uh, as if you're just joining at the end here, this is another special uh, live edition of Growing Forward, the collaborative podcast between New Mexico Political Report and New Mexico PBS that looks at cannabis in New Mexico. Uh, thanks for everyone for joining us in the questions. Don't forget to subscribe to Growing Forward on your preferred podcast platform so you can catch the latest episode. I'm also getting a notification from uh, um, uh, Linda Trujillo's uh, helper here that people with more questions can email uh, the Cannabis Control Division at rld.cannabiscontrol at state.nm.us, which I also believe that's online if you go to the, the website. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for everyone for joining us today. Thank you. It's been about a month since we all or most all of us watched live as Richard Branson made history with Virgin Galactic down at Spaceport America. Uh, first uh, flight into space uh, privatized as he gets ready. Richard Branson does to launch commercial space flight in New Mexico. Uh, it was a live stream, if you saw it, that was slick and well-produced. Um, there was New Mexico True um, branding along with it, uh, just a great uh, PR uh, tool for New Mexico, and we know that it will have huge economic impacts. But what you might not have realized is that there was a lot of local media down there covering that, and uh, it was a surprise to many of them when they got there and found out they were not really allowed to interview people, actually physically separated from people, even elected officials. And Kevin Avila Robinson, or Robinson Avila, sorry, from the Albuquerque Journal, wrote a column about this last week uh, to explain his frustration and why it's so important that we be able to ask questions of elected officials and Virgin. Uh, since there are more than 200 million taxpayer dollars invested in Spaceport America. So correspondent uh, Megan Camrick wanted to sit down with Kevin and find out a little bit more about his experience and, again, why being able to do true journalism is so important when covering that industry as well. Kevin, you have been covering Spaceport America and Virgin Galactic for years. I think a lot of folks pr 
probably see this as billionaires playing at being astronauts and selling seats to rich people. Why is it more than that? Well, the very visible part of what Virgin Galactic is doing that the whole world is seeing and following is to a large extent that, that they're flying wealthy people who could afford at this point tickets of $450,000 a seat to start uh, to space or the promise that they'll start doing that next year and actually build up spaceports in other places around the world to do it all over. And that really, I mean, unless in 30, 40 years or 20 years, the price comes down to open it up to more people at a price that more people can afford, it really is an exclusive business model for people who are elite, who can afford it, who have the income. But that's the most visible part of what Virgin Galactic is doing. The technology they've developed has created other businesses that contribute not just to, well, contribute to critical development for society and humanity in space. One business, for example, to fly using the same technology, rockets part of the way to space that carry satellites and then shoot them into space the way they do passengers on the other uh, uh, adventure uh, business that they have at a much cheaper price to get those satellites up there. And satellites are critical for everything going forward for, for society. So why is this industry important for New Mexico's economy? Well, even the adventure part of it for the people who can afford it is a huge impact on New Mexico's economy. There's already nearly 250 people working regularly at the spaceport with a huge impact on the local economy down there. And Moss Adams accounting firm study of what they could expect once Virgin Galactic stocks operating regularly is 1 billion in accumulated impact in Southern New Mexico just by 2025. Apart from that, you have all the other uh, employment opportunities and businesses that are built up through the tourism that it brings. The flight of Branson brought some 500 to 700 people into Las Cruces, hotels filled in truth of consequences as well. And when they're flying to three times a week, that becomes a regular phenomenon with a great deal of economic impact. Now, all that being said, let's talk about your experience actually covering Richard Branson's flight to space last month. Officials made it really difficult for you all to do your job. How? Well, Virgin Galactic basically live streamed the entire thing on YouTube mm -hmm. for uh, real-time web coverage of what it was doing. But that was all Virgin Galactic uh, company covering its own event and streaming that live to the world. They invited journalists from all over, including me. Uh, people came in from Europe and Asia and every place else. But when we got to the spaceport, they herded us all into a specially designated area, totally separated from the 500 or so guests that were there to view the whole thing and be a part of the historic event. And what was incredibly surprising is they kept the press from leaving that area to interview anybody. We're down there to interview people, bring the thing to, li to life through what we write and what we photograph, talk to all the people walking around. We couldn't do any of it because security guards kept us from leaving our specially designated area. When we tried to, they herded us back. They wouldn't let us. So let's be clear. This is not you as a journalist whining that you couldn't get the story you wanted. Why should we be concerned there is very clearly a coordinated effort to control access on this story? Because as Virgin Galactic portrays it to the world, they're trying to democratize space. It's been limited to what I think the number is 
I forget what the number of astronauts that have actually flown on government flights from the US and elsewhere to space. This opens up, as they say, to humanity for your everyday person to go up to space and make space something that everybody can share in and be a part of, democratize it in that sense. Well, we already know the business model limits how many people can actually do that as we started out discussing, but at least for the world to share in ways that are direct in the experience through people like me, through media, through reporters, through people covering it, through you know that kind of democratization to share the experience is what makes it what Virgin Galactic wants to be. If they limit that, restrict it, and not allow that independent coverage of it, then all you're getting are company images and sound bites and anything they want to show and present to the world. Um, and that becomes a marketing promotional tool. That's not reporting on what's going on. That's not what reporters do. Kevin Robinson Avila with the Albuquerque Journal. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for interviewing me. Appreciate it. And we thank Kevin Robinson Avila for his time. He spent a little bit of extra time with Megan on this topic of Virgin Galactic and having public access, media access to things like that historic space launch. And he, he in this extra, which we're bringing to you now, uh, talked a little bit more about the specifics of the struggles he and other journalists had to get people uh, to actually talk to them, the lengths they had to go to, and even how those got shut down during that launch. And so wanted to bring that to you as well. Uh, so here again, Megan Camerick. Kevin, thanks for sticking with us on this Web Extra. You reported um, on Richard Branson's flight from Spaceport America, Virgin Galactic, and your column talked a lot about how you and press that came from around the world to New Mexico to cover this were essentially prevented from covering it. What did they do? I want to hear some details. <laughs> Can I give you a few? When we all were bussed in from Las Cruces, I don't know how many reporters, but we're talking dozens, uh, got to the spaceport, what, 5, 5.30 a.m., the sun was, still wasn't even up. And there were, there were actually tents, but construction-like tents uh, set up for the event to accommodate the 500 or more invited guests, plus the, the reporters and everybody else. The reporter area was separate from the guest area, and we were immediately, when we got off the bus, herded into the press area, and then literally not allowed by security guards to leave it. I, at one point, from the very start, thought, well, what is this? I need to be over there and talking with those guests. Those are people that I needed to interview for this story, and that include all kinds of public officials, community people that came from Las Cruces and everywhere else, and dozens of Las Cruces public schools uh, children who were bussed in for the event. But we weren't allowed to talk to any of them. They separated us and would not let us cross the line. At one point, I went to the front door of the construction-like tent for the guests and asked the security people standing guard, listen, I need to be in there. Can I go in and interview? The response was, with no explanation, no. He put his hand on my back and literally physically led me back over to the press side. Because we were herding into the press side, me standing shoulder to shoulder with reporters from all over the world, including an Italian TV broadcast reporter with his cameraman who was standing there at the dividing gates, leaning on it, watching in the distance all the people who were mulling around, including Elon Musk from SpaceX, and not being able to even get near them, much less talk to them. 
the Italian reporter looks over at me with this forlorn face and he says, I don't know what to do. I need to be over there and interviewing those people. The guy came in from Europe, flew in for this thing. That's when I decided, well, we need to do something about this. I'm a local reporter. I knew a hell of a lot of the people on that side of the dividing gate, including people like Rick Homans, who was the former economic development secretary um, under Bill Richardson when they struck the deal with Virgin mm-hmm. Galactic. He left the state. He's no longer the development secretary. But he was and back for this. And he came out for it. So that's somebody he was critical in setting this whole thing up 15 years ago. Somebody won immediately report. I saw him in the distance. I started screaming <laughs> to get his attention and wave it. And then he saw me say, oh, Kevin, he comes over and he's gracious. And I said, well, they won't let us go over there, Rick. Come on over here. And so he did. And all the reporters, camaraderie, gathered around. We let the Italian reporter take the lead and interview Rick. Um, and then all us, us asked our own questions while the interview went on. And that worked well. So then the journal editors called up uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham's media, or rather um, uh, press relations uh, people or assistants, in Albuquerque, not town, the spaceport, told them we can't get access. They had to walk Michelle Lujan Grisham over to our press tent so that we could interview Michelle Lujan Grisham. I kept screaming at people that I knew from the other sides that had come up to the gate and we can get more interviews. After the Michelle Lujan Grisham interview, one of the guards guarding the gate, after I screamed for a, a friend, longtime industry rep in New Mexico, to come over and talk with me, she came over and was going to cross over. The guard blocked her and said, "No, can't do that." And I said, "Well, why not? We just had the Michelle Lujan Grisham. We're having that. We can't go over there. Why can't they come over here?" And he said, "Well, after the governor came over, my higher ups told me to put a stop to that." Did he say no. who his higher ups were? No, he didn't. I didn't ask him. I was very mad. <laughs> So I, it didn't occur to me to ask. Again, let us emphasize, this is this is a public facility. Am I right? This is a facility. Do I have that right? Owned by the state? Right. So um, that's kind of put an end to the ushering of people over to our side, although we get that despite what they said. Um, but the bottom line is, what it's unex- inexplicable to me and certainly unacceptable for us not for them to be corralling us that way and keeping us from doing our job. Did they not invite us down? The higher ups want to put a stop to that? I mean, then why did you invite us down there? I could have done just as much as I did down there by sitting in Albuquerque and watching the live feed, that's Virgin Galactic's live feed, not independent coverage, like everybody else in the world and still written the same story that I wrote. So what was I down there for? Mm. And I can tell you what we were down there for to do an independent story and present this historic moment to the world happening right here in New Mexico. But Virgin Galactic divided us down and then didn't let us do that. Now, I have no explanation about why they manage things that way. My, I have assumptions, but I, I'm not going to talk for Virgin Galactic. They had not uh, responded to the column I wrote about my experience down there, but I can tell you it was the same experience by everybody else in the tent, in the press side, from that Italian reporter to all kinds of others. If you ask them, they will tell you the same thing. They may not come out publicly the way I'm saying it. I'm doing it because I have spent 15 years covering this entire thing, blow by blow, in the media. Mm-hmm. And it was incredibly disappointing and discouraging, my experience, and I feel like I need to tell it and hope that Virgin Galactic opens up more. What would you say to 
uh, Virgin Galactic and state officials who say like, well, we had community members there, we had school children there, we had a live feed. They didn't need the media to tell the story, their version of the story. Remember they did, but that was by the initiative of the media to pull them over to our side. Now why Virgin Galactic didn't want that happening, didn't want us going over there, I don't know. Hmm. I do know that the only message then that got out to the world was whatever message Virgin Galactic wanted to put out to the world. And for the most part, that's a marketing message. That's not reporting. That's not media coverage. That's a marketing message. And I gave you the example, I think, of the bike ride that didn't happen. That mm -hmm. was a marketing message. There, transparency has been an ongoing issue at Spaceport America for years. So what can we expect going forward? Because now the idea is there's going to be more launches from there. There's going to be more people taking these. So what, what are you thinking in terms of coverage going forward? Well, remember, the company has every right. They're leasing that space. They created the technology. It's their event. They're paying for it. They have every right and should actually be controlling the access to it for safety reasons, for security reasons. Anything can happen. They know what's best for how the public can view it, including the media. And so they were within their, not only within their right, they're doing what they should be doing. Um, but I think they surpass that right um, when they, if they want to limit our access to their own employees and their own executives because they have a marketing and public relations department, every company works that way, and that's perfectly understandable. But as you pointed out, it's a 225 million public facility, and at events like this, you have our own public officials and community members down there roaming around. I find it inexplicable and under, not, understand, not acceptable that they would restrict us from access to them. Now, what they'll do in the future, I don't know, because as these, you know, maybe it was just the first event, they haven't actually started commercial launches with paying passengers. They'll learn as they go along and maybe they'll change these things. But in the meantime, it's important to point out and draw attention to it so that those things don't happen in the future. I also want to just point out, by the way, that Virgin Galactic isn't the only operator at Spaceport America. They're the big ones. They're the big guys. And they're the ones who are really going to draw the people in. They're doing a lot of good for New Mexico in that sense. And they've helped to pull in a lot of other companies that are operating out of the spaceport in addition to them with a more economic impact from those companies. And of course, as those companies um, do their testing to go to, to, go to suborbit with satellites and things like that, they really do have to restrict uh, the access to those kinds of things and only on certain occasions let people in for safety reasons. So all of that is understandable regardless of whether it's a public facility. But there are certain limits to that and I think I described them more or less. Well, Kevin, thanks for your reporting. You can see um, the full interview on Friday night on New Mexico and Focus, but thanks for doing this and letting us know how that went down. Thank you for interviewing me. Appreciate it. Each and every week when we're doing our line opinion panel, we kick things off with what we call One More Thing, which is a chance for folks to talk about other stories from the news this week that we just don't have time for in the show. But again, the great thing about this podcast is we have time for it here. So we want to bring you that warm-up from last week with our line opinion panel. A reminder, it was Serge Martinez of the UNM Law School, Merritt Allen of Vox Optima PR, and former state senator Diane Snyder. Uh, fascinating conversation as always. We 
often don't ask what folks are going to talk about ahead of time so that it's a natural conversation. This one runs the gamut from America's pastime to the UNM Athletics Department. Also, fascinating discussion about school start times from Serge Martinez as school recently got underway for New Mexico students. Also, elections are coming up, municipal elections. You've no doubt heard a lot about the Albuquerque mayoral race, but there are also school board elections up as well. And Merritt's got a plea for everyone to get involved and educated about that and make their voice heard on the polls. So here's a little bit of web extra material from our line opinion panel and host Gene Grant. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our line opinion panelists joining me via Zoom. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do, we love to warm up by taking a turn at other issues, and there are many, many, many other issues on our minds. Let me start with our former Senator Diane Snyder. Always good to see you, Senator. What's your one more thing this week? Well, uh, as you said, there are way, way too many issues mm -hmm. going around right now. We could we could go into to many of them, but. I had something strike my fancy this morning is, since it's Thursday. I was reading the sports page, and nice. they were promoting the uh, game this evening, the Field of Dreams game. I'm sure that most people remember the movie, the Kevin Costner movie, uh, which was 1989, I believe. Uh, and it was a, a story about a guy who believed in baseball so much that he built this green field in Iowa and uh, abutting it was the cornfields of Iowa. Well, they, this was a, the story was about Shoeless Joe Jackson and many of the players in that era. Mm -hmm. And what had happened is they were accused and, and um, he was actually banned from baseball, but uh, they were accused of messing with and uh, trying to predict, do the outcome of the 1919 World Series and why he did it. He was such an incredible player. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they did. That was what was going on and what the movie was about. And the second piece of the movie 
was Kevin Costner's relationship with his father, who was a for, uh, baseball player. They didn't have a very good one at the beginning of the movie, but went on. And I, I have to chuckle a little bit. One of the things they're doing, the original movie field was not big enough for what wow. uh, uh, MLB, uh, Major League Baseball uh, game. Yeah. So they built a temporary one next to the, the movie site and they had to bring in all kinds of rock and, and sand and all these kinds of things. And they <clears throat> they built a stadium that would hold 8,000 seats, 8,000 people. And I really chuckle because there are only 2,400 people in the little town. Mm -hmm. So they have a great optimism about having lots of people from Iowa come and watch the game. Mm -hmm. I, I They also have a corn maze. And the last little point I want to make is the farmers, local farmers, it's a drought everywhere because the local farmers wanted the corn fields to show green and lawn, so they put in a special sprinkling system so <laughs> just delighted and there's just one quick other thing a Please. sports thing i want to mention and that is i want to shout out a congratulations to the unm athletic director he received the press this week he received the prestigious mountain west conference commissioners award now, most of us don't even know what that is, mm -mm. but to give you an idea of its of its value is it's only the third award that's been given in the 21 years of its history. Wow. And I know a lot of people don't care for the for Eddie Nunez and some of the decisions he's made. I've had the opportunity to talk with him a couple of times very briefly, but he's always impressed me as being such an honorable man and truly looking out for doing the best he can for the student athletes. And so I just wanted to uh, hear, since we're a part of UNM, mm -hmm. this is a shout out to mm -hmm. the athletic director and say congratulations I, to him. I appreciate you, that you did that, of course. I mean, people yeah. toil behind the scenes and do work and that sometimes reputation well, and you know, all that kind of thing. I love it. In the five years he's been here, he certainly had his challenges, yeah. not the least of which was the pandemic and trying to have a sports season. Mm -hmm. So I think he's quite a gentleman. He has had to shepherd UNM sports through a very difficult period. There's no question about it when you count football, all the sports, the loss of soccer. I mean, he's had to manage a lot, a lot, a lot. I appreciate you bringing that up, Senator. Absolutely. And where, where is that field of dreams, by the way? Where, do you know exactly oh, where sorry. that is? Yeah, it's, let me think. The one for the tonight? I can't, I can't recall off the top of my head. I know Kevin oh, Costner is going to be there. It's on the Fox Channel at 5 o'clock. Okay. Okay. So, That'll work. Fox Channel. That'll so, work. It'll be fun. Everybody watch it. Yeah. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. Oh, and they change their costumes. Their, I mean, their uniforms. They've gone back to the old days. Oh, they wow. made the dugouts look like the old Kaminsky Field dugouts. Wow. So, I, wow. if nothing else, the scenery will be worth watching, whether the game is right. or not. <laughs> exactly right. I like Iowa. I haven't been there in a lot of years, but it is pretty. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. yeah. Merritt Allen, always a font. A font of all kinds of information. But what's your one more thing this week? I promise uh, dachshunds will not be mentioned in my one more thing. They're allowed. <laughs> no, I actually, um, uh, I wanna talk about the upcoming municipal elections uh, in Albuquerque. And um, uh, I, I'm not gonna touch on the mayor's race, which is kind of shaping up to uh, 
uh, evoke uh, the classic South Park episode where they uh, South Park Elementary has to elect a new mascot. I'm not going to mention the episode by name because it's a little crude, uh, but it aired October 27th, 2004. You can look it up and know wow. what I'm talking about. Nice. <laughs> But, but something that happened in 2018 is the Albuquerque school, uh, Albuquerque Public School school board elections were tied with the mayoral uh, elections. And that's a big deal this year. Districts, uh, seats for districts three, five, six, and seven are up for election this year. And all those incumbents um, do have opponents. Uh, the filing deadline is August 24th. So there uh, will be official announcements on the APS uh, website. Uh, we're going to see it in the news. Uh, it's going to be an exciting race. And if you remember in February when the governor and the PED said, all right, it's time for schools to reopen, urge schools to open. And the APS school board just said, yeah, I don't think so. We're, we're not ready yet. Parents and students begging to go back into the classroom. We've we've lost a year. Uh, and the candidates, from what I have seen, uh, and these... Uh, a number of these candidates are parents. Mm -hmm. And from what I what I have read, some accounts, it's going to cost $40,000 to mount a campaign. Wow. For a and school board seat. Parents, That's amazing. Yeah. And so th these are parents who are raising children. They've pretty much, you know, signed on and educated their own children last year because that's what, you know, in-home education meant. Um, and they're taking the time to go out and fundraise and put on a campaign. I think it's worth taking a look at. Of uh, the four incumbents, two of them voted to not reopen schools this year. So that's something to think about. Um, so if the municipal election is turning you off this year, and I think for a lot of people <laughs> it is, um, take a look at the school board elections because I think there's a lot there. And I think it's also important to note these candidates are really running on outcomes and they're running as parents who want good outcomes for their kids to prepare them for uh, to enter the workforce, to enter college. They're not running on knee jerk, polarizing issues that are starting to trickle down into school boards. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to get into that because I'm tired of hearing about it, frankly. Mm -hmm. But but do check it out, because I think it's kind of a bright point in what's going to be a slugfest otherwise in our municipal elections. Isn't that something? I mean, in years past, the school board, you know, is an election. I didn't even hear about this. And now, you know, yeah, I, I like the idea of 6,000 votes. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Exactly. That's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. We got to do better. But I think you're right. You know, the school board, our school board, I should say, like many others across the country, have been watched more closely over this past year than probably any other time in recent memory. So, you know, that performance is going to be uh, uh, talked about. There's no question about that. Let me move on to my man, Serge Martinez. Professor, good to see you as always. What's on your mind this week for your one more thing? So I want to, you know, keep, in keeping with the school theme, school yeah. started this week here in Albuquerque, and um, I want to make this a little bit about me, if you'll indulge me. Love it. But uh, I was shocked at the hour that uh, my son, who started high school this week, at the the school starts at seven twenty-five in the morning. Right. Um, and I remember from my own experience back in the day how hard it was to get up early. Um, but science has caught up with this a little bit. And uh, in addition to my outrage at having to get out of bed to get him to school myself, I have learned about, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics has 
talked about teenagers getting sleep as a public health crisis uh, mm -hmm. in America, that we just start schools too early. They, were, they, they suggest it doesn't start before 8.30 for high school or middle school, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, my son's high school starts at 7.25, a full hour before that, right? Um, and the science suggests that this is just a bad idea, mm -hmm. that adolescents need, they're on a slightly different sleep cycle than the rest, than, you know, younger and older people. And by making them get up early, it interferes, you know, it gives, has negative effects on mental health, physical health, on attendance, on learning outcomes, mm -hmm. on so many things. Uh, and that, How about the sanity in the home? Well, <laughs> People I mean, look, screaming I at 630 in the morning to get out of bed, you know what I mean? Exactly, right? <laughs> and in places where they have pushed it back, what they find is, Kids don't stay up later. They go to sleep around the same time. They just sleep later right. and they have better outcomes. And, you know, the time that adolescents fall asleep is more or less biologically determined. And uh, the time that they wake up when it's determined by a school district uh, that's inconsistent with biology has negative outcomes. It's something that uh, I would love to, you know, get changed for many, many reasons. But I think if we're serious about improving academic outcomes and attendance and health for our teenagers, this is a great place to start. Mm -hmm. I have read a bit about that. I, I appreciate you using the word science. There is a lot of science behind this, the sleep cycle of the teenage brain and growing. There's a reason they are so sluggish in the morning. It's not just your kid, it's all teenagers. You know what I mean? I went through it too with my two. It's like, get up. It's just so difficult to get a kid moving early in the morning. And I have to agree with you, 7.25 in the morning is a slightly ridiculous. And I've talked to teachers who teach first period of class and they can confirm it's slightly ridiculous that you get I mean, these, for other humanitarian yeah. reasons, it would be good to push it back as well. That's right. I appreciate that point there, Serge. We'll have to wrap it up there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights and Sunday mornings right here on New Mexico PBS. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, and today is Monday, August 16th, 2021. We hope you had a fabulous weekend and that all is well with you and yours. Uh, we've got a lot more from our show last week that we want to share with you. Uh, if you don't know, I'm sure you do by now, but uh, New Mexico in Focus airs on New Mexico PBS Friday nights at 7 p.m., Again, Sunday mornings at 7 a.m., and we always love to have you join us there, but we like the podcast for the fact that we can bring you extra material, and we can you can take us with you wherever you want to go, listen whenever you want to. So that's why we do this, and we're going to kick things off in this episode with some of that extra that you uh, did not get in the show Friday. You got a piece of it, but not all of it. Uh, it also ties into another project, a podcast project we have called Growing Forward. It's all about the cannabis industry as it gets off the ground here in New Mexico. Collaboration with the New Mexico Political Report and our correspondent, 
Megan Kamrick. She's also the new news director at KUNM. Congratulations on that, Megan. Don't think we've had the chance to do that formally. Um, but they recently caught up with regulation and licensing superintendent Linda Trujillo, who's in charge of setting up this industry, and they've been deep in the process of coming up with the rules for applying for licenses for cannabis producers. Recently had a second hearing of public comment. They had to rewrite some of those rules after the first round of public comment. Uh, Some tweaks still, but none that uh, she thinks, as you will hear, need to um, warrant another round of public hearings. Uh, They're supposed to be able to start accepting those licenses September 1st, so not a lot of time left. Other big news, as you'll hear in here, is the Cannabis Regulatory Advisory Committee has now been appointed. This is a cross-section of folks from lots of different parts of not only the industry, but testing and law enforcement to the legal system. Uh, These are folks that uh, the, the statute that set up the Cannabis Regulation Act uh, mandated be part of this committee, not the specific people, but the, the interests that should be represented in this committee. So the uh, RLD took uh, applications for folks to be on here to advise. They do not get to dictate, but they get to advise on those rules. And so they'll be weighing what the public comment was and what the tweaks of the to those have been. And so lots of things going on there as it moves fast and furious. But here now is that full Facebook Live discussion with Superintendent Linda Trujillo. 